Chapter Sixteen, Part Three of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter Sixteen: A Row in Town, Part Three. After all, mates, the biggest part of our waking lives belongs to our work and certainly the biggest part of our importance is our importance as workers mates we are and we are bound to be workers first and foremost so were our fathers before us so will our children be after us workers first and as workers mates on this everything else depends on our being workers depends our being husbands and fathers and playmates nay our being men if we are not workers we are not even men for we can't exist workers we are mates workers we must be and workers we will be and there's the end of it we take our stand on it workers first and whatever soul we have it must go first into our work workers mates we are workers a man is a man because he works he must work and he does work call it a curse call it a blessing call it what you like but the garden of eden is gone for ever and while the ages roll we must work let us take our stand on that fact mates and trim our lives accordingly while time lasts whatever ages come or go we must work day in day out year in year out so forever then mates let us abide by it let us abide by it and shape things to fit no use shuffling mates though you or i may make a little fortune enough for the moment to keep us in idleness yet mates as sure as ever the sun rises as long as ever time lasts the children of men must rise up to their daily toil is it a curse is it a blessing i prefer to think it is a blessing so long as like everything else it is in just proportion my happiest days have been shearing sheep or away in the gold mines what not talking on a platform asked a voice no not talking on a platform working along with my mates in the bush in the mines wherever it was that's where i put my manhood into my work there i had my mates my fellow workers i've had playmates as well wife children friends playmates all of them my fellow workers were my mates so since workers we are and shall be till the end of time let us shape the world accordingly the world is shaped now for the idlers and the play babies and we work to keep that going no no mates it won't do join hands with the workers of the world just a fist grip as a token and a pledge take nobody to your bosom a worker hasn't got a bosom he's got a fist to work with to hit with and lastly to give the tight grip of fellowship to his fellow workers and fellow mates no matter what color or country he belonged to the world's workers and since they are the world let them take their own and not leave it all to a set of silly playboys and hebrews who are not only silly but worse the world's workers we who are the world's millions the world is our world let it be so then and let us so arrange it what's the scare about being mixed up with brother brown and chinky and all the rest the indians in india the niggers in the transvaal for instance aren't we tight mixed up with them as it is aren't we in one box with them in this empire business aren't we all children of the same noble empire brown black white green or whatever color we may be 
we may not, of course, be reposing on the bosom of Brother Brown and Brother Black, but we are pretty well chained to decide in a sort of slavery, slaving to keep this marvelous empire going, with its out-of-date lords and its fat-arsed hypocritical upper classes. I don't know whether you prefer working in the same imperial slave gang with Brother Brown of India, or whether you'd prefer to shake hands with him as a free worker, one of the world's workers, but one came a loud, distinct voice, as if from nowhere, like a gun going off. But one or the other, two, a solid block of men's voices, like a bell. One or the other, you'll, three, the voice, like a tolling bell of men counting the speaker out. It was the diggers. A thrill went through the audience. The diggers sat mostly together in the middle of the hall around Jack. Their faces were lit up with a new light and like a bell they told the numbers against the speaker, counting him out by their moral unison annihilating him. Willie Struthers, his dark yellow face gone demonic, stood and faced them. His eyes, too, had suddenly leaped with a new look, big dark glancing eyes like an aboriginal's, glancing strangely. Was it fear? Was it a glancing gulf-like menace? He stood there, a shabby figure of a man, with undignified legs facing the tolling enemy. Four! came the sonorous, perfect rhythm. It was a strange sound, heavy, hypnotic, trance-like. Willie Struthers stood as if he were fascinated, glaring spellbound. Five! The sound was unbearable, a madness, tolling out a certain devilish cavern in the back of the men's unconscious mind, in terrible malignancy. The socialists began to leap to their feet in fury, turning back towards the block of diggers. But the lean, naked faces of the ex-soldiers gleamed with a smiling, demonish light, and from their narrow mouths simultaneously, six... Struthers, looking as if he were crouching to spring, glared back at them from the platform. They did not even look at him. Seven, in two syllables. Seven. The sonorous gloating in the sound was unbearable. It was like hammer strokes on the back of the brain. Everybody had started up, save the diggers. Even Summers was wildly on his feet, feeling as if he could fly, swoop like some enraged bird. But his feeling wavered. At one moment he gloated with the diggers against the black and devilish figure of the isolated man on the platform, who half crouched as if he were going to jump, his face black and satanic. And then, as the numbers came, unbearable in its ghastly striking. Eight! Like some hammer stroke on the back of his brain, it sent him clean mad, and he jumped up into the air like a lunatic, at the same moment as Struthers sprang with a clear leap like a cat towards the group of static, grinning ex-soldiers. There was a crash, and the hall was like a bomb that has exploded. Summers tried to spring forward. In the blind moment, he wanted to kill, to kill the soldiers. Jazz held him back, saying something. There was a most fearful roar, and a mad whirl of men, broken chairs, pieces of chairs brandished, men fighting madly with fists, claws, pieces of wood, any weapon they could lay hold of. The red flag suddenly flashing like blood, and bellowing rage at the sight of it. A Union Jack torn to fragments, stamped upon. 
a mob with many different centers, some fighting frenziedly round a red flag, some clutching fragments of the Union Jack, as if it were God incarnate. But the central heap, a mass struggling with the diggers, in real blood-murder passion, a tense mass with long, naked faces gashed with blood, and hair all wild, and eyes demented and collars bursted, and arms frantically waving over the dense bunch of horrific light hands in the air with weapons hands clawing to drag them down wrists bleeding hands bleeding arms with the sleeves ripped back white naked arms with brownish hands and thud as the white flesh was struck with a chair leg the doors had been flung open many men had gone out but more rushed in the police in blue uniforms and in blue clothes wielding their batons the whole place gone mad Richard, small as he was, felt a great frenzy on him, a great longing to let go. But since he didn't really know whom he wanted to let go at, he was not quite carried away. And Jazz, quiet, persistent, drew him gradually out into the street. Though not before he had lost his hat and had had his collar torn open, and had received a bang over the forehead that helped to bring him to his senses smash went the lights of the hall somebody smashing the electric lamps the place was almost in darkness it was unthinkable jazz drew summers into the street which was already a wide mass of a crowd and mounted police urging their way to the door laying about them the crowd too was waiting to catch fire almost beside himself richard struggled out of the crowd to get out of the crowd then there were shots in the night and a great howl from the crowd. Among the police on horseback he saw a white hat, a white felt hat looped up at the side, and he seemed to hear the bellowing of a big husky voice. Surely that was Kangaroo, that was Kangaroo shouting. Then there was a loud explosion and a crash, a bomb of some sort. And Richard suddenly was faint. Jazz was leading him by the arm, leading him away in the city night that roared from the direction of the hall, while men and women were running thither madly, and running us madly away, and motor-cars came rushing, and even the fire brigade, with bright brass helmets, a great rush towards the center of conflict, and a rush away, outwards, while hats, white hats, Summers, in his day's condition, saw three or four, and they occupied his consciousness as if they were thousands. "'We must go back,' he cried. "'We must go back to them.' "'What for?' said Jazz. "'We're best away.' And he led him sturdily down a side street, while Summers was conscious only of the scene he had left, and the sound of shots. They went to one of the smaller, more remote diggers' clubs. It consisted only of one large room, meeting room, and gymnastics hall in a turn, and a couple of small rooms, one belonging to the secretary and the head, and the other a sort of little kitchen with a sink and a stove. The one-armed caretaker was in attendance, but nobody else was there. Jazz and Summers went into the secretary's room, and Jazz made Richard lie down on the sofa. "'Stay here,' he said, "'while I go and have a look round.' Richard looked at him. He was feeling very sick, perhaps the bang over the head. Yet he wanted to go back into the town, into the melee, he felt he would even die if he did so. But then, why not die? Why stay outside the row? He had always been outside the world's affairs. I'll come with you again, he said, 
no i don't want you snapped jazz i have a few of my own things to attend to then i'll go by myself said richard if i were you i wouldn't said jazz and richard sat back feeling very sick and confused but such a pain in his stomach as if something were torn there and he could not keep still he wanted to do something jazz poured out a measure of whiskey for himself and one for richard then he went out saying you'd best stay here till i come back mr summers i shan't be very long jazz too was very pale and his manner was furtive like one full of suppressed excitement richard looked at him and felt very alien far from him and everybody he rose to his feet to rush out again but the torn feeling at the pit of his stomach was so strong he sat down and shoved his fist in his abdomen and there remained it was a kind of grief a bitter agonized grief for his fellow-men he felt it was almost better to die than to see his fellow-men go mad in this horror he could hear jazz talking for some time to the one-armed caretaker a young soldier who was lame with a bad limp as well as maimed i can't do anything i can't be on either side i've got to keep away from everything murmured richard to himself if only one might die and not have to wait and watch through all the human horror they are my fellow-men they are my fellow-men so he lay down and at length fell into a sort of semi-consciousness still pressing his fist into his abdomen and feeling as he imagined a woman might feel after her first child as if something had been ripped out of him he was vaguely aware of the rage and chaos in the dark city round him the terror of the clashing chaos but what was the good even of being afraid even of grief it was like a storm in which he could do nothing but lie still and endure and wait they also serve who only stand and wait perhaps it is the bitterest part to keep still through it all and watch and wait in a numb half-sleep richard lay and waited waited for heaven knows what it seemed a long time then he heard voices there was jack and jazz and one or two others loud voices presently jack and jazz came into him jack had a big cut on the chin and was pale as death there was blood on his coat and he had a white pocket handkerchief round his neck having lost his collar he looked with black eyes at richard what time is it asked richard blowed if i know answered jack like a drunken man half past eleven said jazz quietly only an hour or an hour and a half time must have stood still and waited what has happened asked richard not blurted jack still like a drunken man not happened bloody blasted nothing kangaroo is shot said jazz dead no snarled jack no damn you're not dead summers looked at jazz they've taken him home shot in the belly said jazz in his bloomin kangaroo guts said jack ain't much left of the ant that shot him though neither guts nor marrow richard stared at the two men are you hurt he said to jack me oh no i just scratched myself shaven darlin makin me toilet there was silence for some time jazz's plump pale face was still impassive inscrutable and his clothing was in order jack poured himself a half glass of neat whiskey put in a little water and drank it off 
and Willie Struthers and everybody? asked Richard. Gone home to his missus to have sausage for tea, said Jack. Not hurt? Blowed if I know, replied Jack indifferently, whether he's hurt or not. And is the town quiet? Summers turned to Jazz. Has everything blown over? What has happened? What has happened exactly, I couldn't tell you. I suppose everything is quiet. The police have everything in hand. Police, snarled Jack. Bloody Johnny Hops. They couldn't hold a sucking pig in their hands unless somebody hung on to its tail for them. It's our boys who got things in hand and handed them over to the Hops. Summers knew that Johnny Hops was Australian for a policeman. Jack spoke in a suppressed frenzy. Was anybody killed? Summers asked. I'm sure I hope so. If I haven't done one or two of them in, I'm sorry. Damn sorry, bloody sorry, said Jack. I should be careful what I say, said Jazz. I know you'd be careful, you Cornish whisper. Careful Jimmy's your name and nation. But I hope I did one or two of them in. And I did one or two of them in. See the brains sputter out of that chap that shot Rue? And suppose they arrest you tonight and shove you in jail for manslaughter, said Jazz. I wouldn't advise anybody to lay as much as a leaf of maidenhair fern on me tonight, much less a finger. They might tomorrow. You be still and go home. Jack relapsed into a white silence. Jazz went into the common room again, where members dropped in from the town. Apparently, everything had gone quiet. It was determined that everybody should go home as quietly and quickly as possible. Richard found himself in the street with Jazz and Jack, both of whom were silent. They walked briskly through the streets. Groups of people were hurrying silently home. The town felt very dark, and as if something very terrible had happened. A few taxicabs were swiftly and furtively running. In George Street and Pitt Street, patrols of mountain police were stationed, and the ordinary police were drawn up on guard outside the most important places but the military had not been called out. On the whole, the police took as little notice as possible of the foot passengers who were hurrying away home, but occasionally they held up a taxi cab. Jazz, Jack, and Summers proceeded on foot, very quickly and in absolute silence. They were not much afraid of the city authorities, perhaps not so much afraid as were the authorities themselves, but they all instinctively felt it best to keep quiet and unnoticed. It was nearly one o'clock when they reached Wywork. Victoria had gone to bed. She called when she heard the men enter. Evidently she knew nothing of the row. Only me and Jazz and Mr. Summers, called Jack. Don't you stir. Of course I must, she cried brightly. Don't you move, thundered Jack, and she relapsed into silence. She knew, when he had one of his hell moods on him, it was best to leave him absolutely alone. The men drank a little whiskey, then sat silent for some time. At last, Jazz had the energy to say they must go to bed. Trot off, Jazzy, said Jack. Go to be by, boys. That's what I'm doing, said Jazz, as he retired. He was sleeping the night at Wywork, his own home being across the harbor. Summers still sat inert with his unfinished glass of whiskey, though Jazz said to him pertinently, Aren't you retiring, Mr. Summers? Yes, he answered, but didn't move. 
the two were left in silence only the little clock ticking away everything quite still suddenly jack rose and looked at his face in the mirror nicked a bit out of my chin seemingly it was that little bomb that did that dirty little swine to throw a bomb but it hadn't much kick in it he turned round to summers and the strangest grin in the world was on his face all the lines curved upwards tell you what boy he said in a hoarse whisper i settled three of em three there was an indescribable gloating joy in his tones like a man telling of the good time he has had with a strange mistress gar but i was lucky i got one of them iron bars from the windows and i stirred the brains of a couple of em with it and i broke the neck of a third why it was as good as a sword to defend yourself with see he reached his face towards summers with weird gruesome exultation and continued in a hoarse secret voice cripes there's nothing bucks you up something like killing a man nothing you feel a perfect angel after it richard felt the same torn feeling in his abdomen and his eyes watched the other man when it comes over you you know there's nothing else like it i never knew it till the war and i wouldn't believe it then not for many a while but it's there cripes it's there right enough having a woman something isn't it but it's a flea bite nothing compared to killing your man when your blood comes up and his eyes glowed with exultant satisfaction and the best of it is he said you feel a perfect angel after it you don't feel you've done any harm feel as gentle as a lamb all round i can go to victoria now and be as gentle he jerked his head in the direction of victoria's room and you bet she'll like me his eyes glowed with a sort of exaltation killing is natural to a man you know he said it's just as natural as lying with a woman don't you think and still richard did not answer the next morning he left early for mullumbibby the newspaper gave a large space to the disturbance but used the wisest language brawl between communists and nationalists at canberra hall unknown anarchist throws a bomb three persons killed and several injured ben cooley the well-known barrister receives bullets in the abdomen but is expected to recover police aided by diggers soon restored order this was the tone of all the newspapers most blamed the labor incendiaries with pious horror but all declared that the bomb was thrown by some unknown criminal who had intruded himself into the crowd unknown to all parties there was a mention of shots fired and a loud shout of accusation against the mounted police from the labor papers declaring that these had fired on the crowd equally loud denials a rigorous inquiry was to be instituted fourteen men were arrested jack was arrested as the leader of the men who had counted out willie struthers but he was released on bail kangaroo was said to be progressing as far as could be ascertained favorably and then the papers had a lovely lot of topics they could discuss the character and persons of struthers and ben cooley all except the radical paper the sun praising ben for his laudable attempt to obtain order by the help of his loyal diggers the sun hinted at other things then the personal histories of all the men arrested jack the well-known b c was cautiously praised 
what was curious was that nobody brought criminal charges against anybody jack's iron bar for instance nobody mentioned it was called a stick who fired the revolvers nobody chose to know the bomb-thrower was an unknown anarchist probably a new immigrant from europe each side vituperated and poured abuse on the other sides but nobody made any precise criminal accusations most of the prisoners including jack were bound over two of them got a year's imprisonment and five got six months and the affair began to fizzle down a great discussion started on the subject of counting out tales were told how the sick men in a hospital from their beds counted out an unsympathetic medical officer till the man dared not to show his face it was said that the aussies had once begun to count out the prince of wales it was in egypt the prince had ridden up to review them and he seemed to them as they stood there in the sun to be supercilious superior this is the greatest offence so as he rode away like magic they started to count him out one two three no command would stop them the prince though he did not know what it meant instantly felt the thing like a blow and rode back at once holding up his hand to ask what was wrong and then he was so human and simple that they said they had made a mistake and they cheered him passionately but they had begun to count him out and once a man was counted out he was done he was dead he was counted out so newspaper talk and summers looking through the bulletin though he could hardly read it now as if he could not see it in its one level as if he had gone deaf to its note was struck by the end of a paragraph this tendency may be noted in the christianized melanesian native in whom an almost uncontrolled desire to kill sometimes arises without any provocation whatever fortunately for the would-be victim the native often has a premonition of the impending nerve storm it is not uncommon for a white man to be addressed thus by his model houseboy walking behind him on a bush track more better tobara master you walk behind me me want make you kill in five minutes if the master has been wise enough to get out of the way a smiling boy will indicate that his little trouble has been weathered in these cases brother brown is certainly a gentleman compared to the atavistic white end of chapter sixteen part three